I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Munat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 379. As I'm recording the intro to this episode, I'm in State College, Pennsylvania, on my Jazz or Bus tour. But by the time you are listening to it, I will have moved on. I think I'll have moved on twice. Yeah, I think I'll have moved on to uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and then moved on again to Washington, D.C. So probably by the time you're listening to this, I'm in Washington, D.C. Very, very exciting. All kinds of cool things are happening on this tour. Uh, I just had a fantastic interview this morning in State College with Barry Kernfeld, who's the editor of the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. And I didn't even know he lived in State College until I got here and found out. And he lives, as it turns out, down the street from the house I'm staying in. So it's, it was perfect. He's a fascinating guy. That'll be Monday's show. Uh, housekeeping, thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thank you to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can, of course, follow the show at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes, and there's an RSS feed and all those good things. And you can follow my updates from the tour at jasoncrane.org. That's where I'm posting all my tour diaries and photos and recordings of the poetry readings. And, of course, then the shows that I record are posted here at thejazzsession.com. I could use your support in one of two ways. You can either directly support the tour, and to do that, just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the Jazz or Bust Tour link. And you can make a one-time donation to the tour. Or you can become a member of the show, and then your recurring contribution to the show is what's going to help me survive when I'm on the tour, kind of over the long term. But either of those ways is incredibly helpful. So either make a one-time donation to the tour. Oh, and I should mention that if you do that, there are a lot of thank you gifts that come with that. Or you can become a recurring member of the show, and that just helps either in a monthly or yearly way uh, continue to contribute to my show. And as I'm doing this, more importantly, to the tour directly. Please, if you have iTunes, go to iTunes and rate the show. Just search for The Jazz Session in the iTunes Store. Give it a nice star rating and a nice review. That just helps it go up in the rankings. I thank you for doing that. I think that's it, right? That's probably all the housekeeping. So let's just dig in. Uh, This is an interview I tried to get for a long, long time. I I think it's fair to say it, it took certainly more than a year, and I think it took like two years. And that is because Vernon Reed, my guest today, is one of the busiest men in show business. It's amazing. He plays with a million different people, including, of course, Living Color, the band he founded. He also founded the Black Rock Coalition. He's now in the band Spectrum Road, which is what we're going to talk about for most of this interview. He does a fantastic podcast that I love with the comedian W. Kamau Bell, who's about to be host of his own show on FX, by the way. Uh, it's called The Field Negro Guide to Arts and Culture, and you can just Google that and you'll find them. It's really fantastic. It's produced by Alex Thornton, uh, who I know a little bit. So Vernon Reed is just a, a renaissance man. He does it all. He is one of the most uh, well-versed, wide-ranging intellects I have ever encountered, and it was such a pleasure to sit down with him. And <laughs> if I sound a bit like a gushing fanboy right now, it's because I'm kind of a gushing fanboy. Now, I will say, however... I was quite proud of myself because my inclination was to spend the entire interview talking about comic books. And I don't think I spent any of the interview talking about comic books. You're welcome. I don't know if the knocking on the door was audible, but I was having a vegan pizza delivered. Anyway, I'm back. Vernon's got a new record called Spectrum Road. Uh, it's fantastic. When you hear about the band, you'll understand why. So with no further ado, let's hear some music from Spectrum Road in my conversation with Vernon Reed. Hey, 
my guest is Vernon Reed, and uh, and it's such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you, Jason. We're uh, we're here to talk about many things, but including Spectrum Road, the new record, which is inspired by Tony Williams yes. and his groundbreaking jazz rock work. But uh, just for listeners to the jazz session who might say, Vernon Reed, I think I know that name. Wasn't he in a rock band? Yeah. I think. It would be nice to put you in yeah, a little I'm bit of context. Still, I'm still in the band living color. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, you've been a core part of New York's downtown scene since the 80s, going back to Ronald Shannon Jackson, yes. and you've played with a lot of names everybody would know. And I just wanted to start just by asking you before we talk about the new record, what, what drew you to the world of kind of creative improvised music, which is where you spent so much of your time? I guess I would, that's such a strange thing because I'm a huge pop fan, and you know I grew up listening to, you know... R&B and rock and roll and all that stuff, everything from the Beatles to Sly Stone, James Brown. Like, I love that music. And then something happened when I got exposed to Coltrane. And, and I think the thing is hearing my favorite things. Because my favorite things is, is one of the main songs from the musical, The Sound of Music. And I remember seeing The Sound of Music, the, the, the film. The hills are alive with the sound of blah, blah, and all of that. And then hearing Coltrane's interpretation of it was such a revelation because, to me, it retained an aspect of what the song is talking about. And talking about how in life, you know, they're the things we like and the things that we don't like so much, you know. Uh, and I was turned on to that in my high school, an after-school program by the leader of our jazz workshop, uh, Mr. Gene Gee, who was, uh, I think, I haven't seen him for a while, but Mr. Gene Gee, he played, with, he played in the Sam Rivers horn section. Mm-hmm. And I actually, years later, when I was traveling, I ran into my old teacher playing with Sam Rivers. So he was the first person to play Coltrane. I mean, he was the person that played Mungo Santa Maria's version of Cold Sweat. You know, he had a record player in the basement. I mean, I'm dating myself terribly, but... Sorry, I started with vinyl, too. It's fine. Yeah, and so <laughs> that changed my life. Um, that and the fact that I had already started to hear the guitar and really hear it as an individual voice... And the guitarist that really led me into that was Carlos Santana. And then Carlos himself had a deep appreciation and love and still does have a deep appreciation for John Coltrane. In fact, he, in the course of his shows, does a a love supreme. I mean, he really is about it. And And he and John McLaughlin had done some pretty amazing two-guitar work that referenced Coltrane. Exactly. So... That moment of hearing these extended improvisations and this extemporaneous just reinterpretation of the melody and just the emotional flow that that Coltrane was attached, that, you know, what he connected to, because it wasn't divorced from the lyric of the song. In other words, it didn't feel as if this was a vehicle to blow over. It felt as if this was an extension, an acknowledgement of the lyrical content, and an extension into an, an extension, an abstraction of the ideas, the emotions, the feelings that are contained in that in that song. And so, in a weird way, that the idea that a song could also be that could also be blown apart and turn sideways. That's where it began.
time when you want to be older There comes a time when you want to be bolder I love you more when it's over Carlos first, then I heard Hendrix, and Hendrix, because Hendrix, he was a man that would have been put in a pressure cooker, because he was an R&B guitar player, and many people focus on Hendrix as electric blues, but really he played R&B, and he played R&B, he played rock and roll and R&B, and he was a, a, a side man, and he was a side man for Little Richard, he was a side man for the Isley Brothers. And uh, all of those experiences really forged him because, you know, R&B and rock and roll is deeply hierarchical. You know, the singer is the leader of the band. The singer of the song calls the shots. Everybody else has to do what they say do. Sure. And he kept pushing the boundaries. You know, because he, he wanted to get attention, he was young, he was dynamic. I mean, he had absorbed all of T-Bone Walker's tricks, because all of those things that Hendrix did, playing with his teeth, playing behind his head, you know, that was all stuff that T-Bone Walker and Chuck Berry did. And and that was almost not quite standard, but a, a lot of guitar players, you know, like Luther Allison and people like that, absorbed what that... Was and even that seemed to come out to some degree of like that bar walking saxophone tradition. Absolutely, who were squeaks and squonks and that kind of thing. Yeah, because because bands, when you think about the bands, the bands were in fierce competition. You know, there was an ecology of bands, and so if you could be as funny as a Louis Jordan, you got you got a little more attention. You know, if, if you were as clever about a drinking song as Amos Milburn. You got attention. And and that was part of the tradition that came into it. And and Little Richard, I mean, he was one he was the most he was one of the most dangerous men on stage ever. I mean he was like you couldn't predict what was gonna happen. You know, he could I mean it could turn into a revival meeting or it could turn into a strip club show. He was and that, he was kind of so random, but he was the star. Mm. And when Jimmy started showing out, and you know, he was like, "That was not to be tolerated. <laughs> that was not to be tolerated." And and, and interestingly enough, you know, the Joe Boyd uh, film, a film about Jimi Hendrix, um, Little Richard's just interview is just. Fascinating because you know he says, well, you know he you need he need to be put in the dipper and poured back onto the world, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it's you know, in other words, I fired his ass, but he did okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and so all that to say that when the lid was taken off the pressure cooker, he was so. He, you know, the idea that to have the freedom to do and say and be what he wanted to be, especially in the context of what was going on in the culture, was really explosive. And he was right at the forefront of, of what that is because he had been under manners for so long and he'd been exploding with ideas, with passion, and it, and it just, just came through. And you seem to come up right at the time when... That idea of extended improvisation, I mean, everybody from, when you already mentioned Santana, uh, Hendrix, John McLaughlin, and, you know, even going to the dead. I mean, sure. these, these bands where, where the fans were totally okay, sometimes chemically assisted to being okay, but totally okay right. with the music, you know, with a guitar solo lasting 20 minutes. Right. And that seems 
if what you want to do is explore the outer possibilities of your instrument, it seemed like you came up when your ears could pick up a lot of things well, that led you in that direction. Well, the thing that's so interesting about it is that there's a parallel movement in rock and jazz. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly what Coltrane did. I mean, it wasn't just that Coltrane was doing these extraordinary things. He was also filling the clubs. I mean, he became a, a cause, uh, you know, a celebrated character. And and to the point where it was very, very controversial. I mean, the critics were, people were up in arms, especially sure. when he started to make connections to the civil rights movement and, and artists started to, to, like Max Roach, started to make, you know, you know, noises about, you know, everything is not cool. And that became a problem. But anyway, what was going on with Mingus and, you know, Mingus, certainly Mingus with, with Eric Dolphy, um, these things were happening and it was and it was and it was mainstreaming. I mean I mean Wes Montgomery had played briefly with both Coltrane and Eric Dolphy and then went on to do his record impressions, you know, so there was so there was what Hendricks what Hendricks what Coltrane did had a very deep had a very deep made a lasting impression. And then also Miles Davis was was moving in terms of what he was what he was talking about. So there was like a lot of ferment in the in, in the sixties in both rock and jazz and, and certainly the Beatles were moving away from the tight combo, you know, the you know, the, the, the very focused pop song. When you get to like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you know, by the time that they you know, I mean that that George Harrison, you know, had, had introduced the world to Ravi Shankar and, and, and the Carnatic music is about extended improvisations and things. So all of these things were were coming into were coming into focus and become a, a real uh, kind of almost standard idea, standardized idea. I mean, of course, there had been pushed. There was a pushback against it. You know, other forms of other forms. You know, the tightly paced pop song was very threatened by this kind of free form. What is it? Who, who knows what it is? But the whole idea of like bands jamming and, 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 and having an experience, an experience like you go to the show and you're going to be different, you know, and that was the thing that that went on from from bands like The Doors, you know, the whole idea of the Dionysian, the kind of bacchanal, like there's going to be this, we're going to experience this catharsis, you know, we're going to sort of, which is connected also to what was going on with the, you know, with the the poets like Ginsburg and how Ginsburg hooks in with Bob Dylan and then Hendrix was influenced by Bob right. by, by <laughs> Dylan and you know and so it's on it's it's on and, and also you know this was an ending for a, a character like Elvis I mean this was you know El, Elvis was not going to drop acid <coughs> I mean he was going to take prescription drugs you know what I mean right. so I mean in, in a lot of ways this, this there was this been this powerful powerful shift and Tony Williams playing with um, having played you know with Miles' quintet uh, with Herbie Hancock um, he was affected by he was a young person when this was you know he was he had been playing with Miles when he was 17 he was 18, 19 years old all this was happening and this whole kind of psychedelic Aspect, you know, the aspect of you know exploring and going on a journey became a very powerful, you know, very powerful idea. And in emergency, it was a record. I mean, I mean, so so right on time. Oh, 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 oh,
it seems to me like I'm sorry to little, interrupt you, but just to add in that it, it seems to me like Tony is a lot earlier in the timeline than he's often given credit he for. He really is. I mean, and that's the thing because mostly when when we talk about jazz rock and jazz rock fusion, we kind of go right to Miles in in a silent way and bitches, and bitches brew. brew and right and. And we forget that actually Tony Williams was kind of earlier and and that John Lachlan was hired away from Lifetime. You know, and, 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 and it was very, it was really interesting because Miles had been taking inspiration not only from Tony, but you know, from Betty Davis, Betty Mabry. Um, who was like saying, hey, man, check this out, check that out, listen to this, listen to that. She was much younger than him. And so when Jack, was, when Cream was breaking up, and... I Jack mean, Bruce, we should say. Jack Bruce. Yep. And he got turned on to Tony Williams. He, he just really kind of was like, oh, I'm going to play with that guy. It was very, very interesting to talk to Jack and really get so much, you know, between... I had a lot of... You know, the info from Cindy and Jack just talking about, oh, yeah, you know, that actually, no, no, it kind of went like that. Not like that. It was like that. I was like, oh, wow. The, uh, to kind of bring it up to the modern era now, uh, Spectrum Road, we should mention, is uh, you and Cindy Blackman and Jack Bruce and uh, John Medeski. Cindy Blackman Santana. Santana, sorry. Yes, yeah. I'm still used to it. And in fact, on all the windows of the building next door, on the second floor windows, it says Blackman all the way across on every window. I'm not sure. That's crazy. I'm not sure why, but it's there. <laughs> um, and this is very much a band uh, inspired by everything we've been talking about. But, uh, but not just... Not just directly derivative. I mean, you. It sounds like a real band. It doesn't just sound like a tribute band, and it doesn't just sound like you're rehashing the old times. It sounds very yeah. fresh. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a tribute to the way the four personalities kind of link together, and um, it was just making the record was just a, kind of in a magic bubble. We had just played a bunch of really great shows, and it was like lightning in a bottle like our schedules have been so crazy that if we didn't take the opportunity to record we just we just not get around to it and we managed to to make it work and make it happen and I can't even imagine the four of you being able you, you both toured and recorded an album I mean you guys have the four of the craziest yeah, schedules so very, yeah, and music yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and um the fact that it happened at all is just wonderful, you know, because a lot, you know, because this project had been literally years in the planning. Because I, I had the first conversations with Jack about it, uh, two thousand and one, um, and and just kind of reaching out to to Cindy and reaching out to John, and everybody was like, "Oh man, it's yeah, sure." But the thing is, which you know, John was doing. I mean, I mean, a lot of tours was touring with Desky Martin Wood, and then was touring with Desky Martin Wood and DJ Logic, and then doing stuff with John Schofield. And right. Blah, blah, you, know. you know, I've been t- still touring with with going back and forth between Yo- you know, Living Color, Yohimbi Brothers, and Mask, and you know, Jack had been doing just just a ton of different things, you know. And Cindy was splitting time between Lenny Kravitz and her own project, so it was a very you know, to get it together, for us to get together just took a lot of, oh, is that the window? No, okay. But the idea stayed in everyone's space. And so when we got together, it, it was just remarkable because it was just like, well, I hope this works. And it, and it actually did. And then the next time, you know, we played a series of shows in Japan. And then the next series of shows... The first series of shows we played, it was great. It was it felt really good. And then the next series of shows we played, we played a bunch of shows at the Blue Note. It took on this other something that's clicked in. And it took on this other dimension. Is that where it really became a band? I think so. It just started to have this great... I mean, it felt great all the times we played, but then it just... Took this other, this other, uh, this other thing, 
you know, and it just, um, and you know, things like that, you can't, you know, it's like a butterfly, you, you just gotta, you know, you have to be careful, you can destroy it, people destroy it all, people destroy these things all the time, you know, like uh, porcelain or crystal, you know, it, it happens all the time, you polish it too much, you get a crack, you know. Right. And so when we, we got in and we, and we did, um, you know, we got out of the way of the music. And, and one of the best examples of how we did was, was this um, kind of Scottish Gaelic piece, which really started out as just these tubular drums in a corner. It's like, oh, we got to do something with that. And, and, and it wound up with Jack walking in and, oh, let me try something. And you sing in this language, I have no idea what it is, but it was so beautiful and so emotional. shared politics, my brain immediately went to Pat Tillman when I first heard this on the record, but I don't know if that's the Tillman we're referring to at all. No, 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 that's that's actually, no, that's actually, uh, no, it's actually T-I-L-L-M-O-N. It's, 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 it's uh, Tony's middle name. Oh, okay. I've only heard it. I haven't seen that. Anthony Tillman Williams, and I believe his father's name, uh, Tillman, his father's first name is Tillman. Okay, gotcha. So, so yeah, so then, uh, uh, Jack was saying, you know, this is, this is dedicated to you know, this is inspired by Anthony Tillman Williams. I was like, Tillman, Tillman. Mm. So, so uh, obviously I know how you, uh, you and Jack came to be in the project since the two of you collectively had the idea. How did uh, Cindy and John come to be associated with I Just, Just call them because Cindy was just the, the, the drummer I immediately thought of because she is a an unashamed devotee of Tony Williams. Like she unabashedly loves him. And in the way that, say, Santana loves Coltrane. She, she loves Tony, and she's been outspoken about it. And, you know, she's released her own records doing some of the same material. Mm-hmm. So she, she was fully fully on. And I, I just thought, you know, she is 100% there. And then I also thought, you know, what a great change in the just in the dynamics to have you know, I love female drummers like you know, like yeah. Nikki Glaspie. You know, you know, mm-hmm. like Lafrayski. You know, like you know, I, you know, I, I think uh, the world of these girls, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th- I think it's interesting that you say she is a devotee of Tony in the same way that Carlos Santana is a devotee of Coltrane, because similarly, these are two. Like she's not she's not a carbon copy by any means. She has no, a totally no, no, has other a feeling. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's like it's but like a similar Steve energy. Ray Vaughan clearly, in, in a weird way, also absorbed 
the language of Albert King and Jimi Hendrix. But, sure. But Stevie Ray Vaughan is his own man, completely his own man. And, um, you know, and that's the thing about, about, you know, the ecstasy of influence, is that influence, if influence leads you to find your own voice, then fair enough. If influence has you cleave to the safety of another's voice, not so much. Mm. You know, because sounding exactly like someone else note for note, you don't have their life. You don't live their life. And in a weird way, it reduces the life of another as to a series of gestures and ticks almost. So the great challenge always of of um, artists, musicians is, is, you know, this is my, this is me, who are you? It's the question, who are you? Mm. And it's a frightening question because, you know, if you go with who you actually are, you know, you have to accept that there are no guarantees of understanding, popularity, acceptance. You know, and that's, and that's the, that's the, that's the danger. You know, there's a safety. There's a kind of safety in playing exactly like a Hendrix because there's a certain amount of people who just love that and you're going to do something they love, but that love is kind of for a shadow of a memory of a thing that used to be. Mm. You know? And there's a kind of love for you from delivering the shadow of a memory of a thing that used to be, <laughs> but it's not really love for you. It's for the shadow. Yeah. They would rather have the thing that used to be if they could. If they, you know, if you, you know, I mean, it, really, you know, yeah. it, I mean, that's the thing. We have such a, because what the great artists have put into the matrix of our lives is, you know, they, they've created a desire for their presence, you know, like, um, you know, John Lennon is John Lennon is John Lennon and that's what we have to love and celebrate and let go of we have to let we have to as we celebrate Hendrix we also have to let go never forget but we, we have to let go and that's one of the most difficult things in talking about you know, Mingus and Ellington or Richard Pryor you know is letting go because they did this thing, they laid it down, and that's where it, that's where it is. And, mm. and the question is, who's picking up the mantle to go forward? It's 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 like interesting that 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 both Ornette and Dolphy took the language of Charlie Parker and extended it and abstracted it. They took something that was already abstract and abstracted it even further and they did it both in completely different ways and that's the power of what's possible you can see oh it started here and then it went it goes can go into a myriad of directions and um, there was a time when individuality even with influence everybody had to have their own take there were a lot of singing groups. There were a lot of singing groups. There were Martha and the Vandellas and the Supremes. Um, there were, there were, I mean, the Main Ingredient, the Temptations, the Four Tops, Blue Magic, the Delphonics, mm-hmm. the Shylights, the Stylistics. Right? <laughs> now, all of these groups, they're clearly in the form. The persuasions, you know, they're clearly in the form of the multiple voices singing group, but they're all completely different from one another, even within a tradition, you know, and that's and that's a remarkable thing. It's remarkable that we have no no singing groups. I mean, nothing, nothing like what it was. Sure, and. Is that a change in society? Is that a change in the modality? You know, is that a change? That's a ch- it's clearly different. And, and, and talking about an in-sync or boys to men, it's, it's, and I'm not nostalgic at all. I want to be very careful about this saying that. Not nostalgic for, I would rather hear what the modern take is. 
though from a jazz perspective if I can yeah. and one of the things that comes up on this show a lot no please that's fine <laughs> I've spent so many hours in the last year listening to your voice on the Field Negro Guide that I, <laughs> this is great to me I, sometimes I forget that I have to come in and ask you anything I'm just waiting for come out to say something um, in the j- jazz world and this comes up all the time there's this issue that now that jazz school is kind of what you do yeah. so much of a period from about the early 50s to the late 60s has been codified and just has become the text. This is what we teach from. Mm -hmm. That uh, a lot of people who come on this show express a fear about exactly what you're talking about, this idea of individuality and of finding your own voice because everybody comes out of jazz school and obviously I'm exact, you know, generalizing, but most people come out of jazz school sounding like one of a few voices yeah. because that's what the text is from which everybody's learning. Right. And I wonder if, can, I mean, can you relate, maybe even from your own experience, how with these massive giants' uh, shoulders to stand on, you were still able to find your own voice and maybe how someone else might do it well, who's coming out of this I mean, the, environment? I mean, ultimately, we are social animals and... We are plagued with the desire to be liked, to be accepted. Um, we have a competitive nature. You know, we want to spread our genetic material around. If not our genetic material, we want to spread our ideas around. Mm. Um, and things that are contrary, you know, we are very, as a society, we're very quick to foreign bodies and, you know, that the antibodies will come out and discipline you know, those that step out of line. Sure. And that happens in every field, whether it's fashion or whether it's music. And this is, and, and, and it has been ever thus. Um, there was a doctrinaire period. Once somebody has come out and they've done this thing and they've changed a certain thing, then suddenly people are officials that say this is the way that things should be done. You know, there's a difference between the idea of Jesus of Nazareth and his band of merry men walking around causing trouble for the Pharisees and the Emperor Constantine saying, this is it. This is how it's <laughs> laid down. You know what I mean? At, at that point, you have, you know, the, I mean, it happens a lot, you know, like, and there's a kind of tyranny that's almost unavoidable. Mm-hmm. And when the institutionalization the the respectability you know jazz was made by some really outrageous characters I mean characters that you know I mean really erudite geniuses some of them were wild men and wild women um and when the institutions come along there was a there's like on the one hand there's this craving for respectability, you know? Jazz is a whorehouse music. And it's the music of a collision of things, you know, the, the, the people that should not be meeting after dark mm. are getting together. 
and we're also in denial of that, those meetings and those sorts of things that are happening after dark. We're in denial of the fact that some of those people meeting after dark are not of the opposite sex. We're in denial of a lot of different things. And we're also have this, uh, had a really difficult time with integrating the social movements and the social political context for a social political and economic context for what happened with America's classical music mm. between its creation, its popularity, and its institutionalization. To the point where there was a whole movement where guys didn't want to even use the word jazz. Because the because for jazz had become an alienating term, it became a term that was very difficult. And, and one of the things about in the institutions, the analysis, you know, on one sense, all you have is the notes themselves. So the notes stripped of all context. You know, there's no notes stripped. You can have, you know, Milt Jackson's notes. You don't need to have his misery and what it took for him to raise the mallet and bring it down. Mm. You know, you can, you know, um, you can have Art Blakey transcribed, but you don't have to have how he kept swinging while practically in a nod on the drums. Um, you can have a song like Deacon Blues that codifies the desire to be a jazz musician and talk about drink scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel and not have to deal with the pain and shock of uh, uh, Max Roach hearing that his best friend died in a car accident. Right. Clifford Brown died dead at 23. And how that completely altered his life and his trajectory as an artist. These are the things that are, are the most difficult things. And, and, and for someone to say, to take a walk into space with all they know, all they have and don't have, and to make a name away in the world, you know, that's incredibly, it's incredibly brave. And we're asking for people to be brave when, you know, to take courage and to, um, I understand the appeal of the institution. I really understand the appeal of just having the notes and not dealing with the fear and trembling and terror that pushed those notes out. I talked to a guy one time who was a stockbroker. And he knew who I was from Living Color. And he was planning on playing guitar. And he was saving up a bunch of his money. And he had his whole plan worked out. And he was talking about, yeah, I got this, that, and the other thing. Like, you know, because I don't really want to be able to do stuff. And, he, you know, he was going to have this war chest. And he was going to go out and, 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 you know, he wanted to get out from his rat race. And I just turned to him. And just said, you know, in your struggle is your sound. I mean, like making a safe place for you, yourself. And then somehow great, anything is going to come out of it. I don't know. It could happen. Certainly functional things can happen. You know, you can take lessons with the best. And eventually, if you take your 10,000 hours, you'll eventually get better. And you'll eventually be impressive. But what's the point of that? Mm. When you hear an Eric Dolphy play God Bless the Child... And he's just arpeggiating on a on a bass clarinet, and you, and I remember being utterly baffled the first dozen times I heard "God Bless the Child," and there's one section where he makes a brief reference to the melody, mm -hmm. and it's incredibly fleeting. And if you're not paying attention, really paying attention, you will miss it. And that fleeting reference is all you're gonna get. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna get the satisfaction of him blowing over this but you know that's one of the greatest versions of God bless the child ever because in doing that and just that one hit he's really talking about what that is he's really talking about God bless the child who has his own and you know 
I'm one of those wild seeds that for good and ill, I have done this thing. Mm. And, you know, uh, to ask people to risk their lives, we ask people to risk their lives. And, you know, it's their job. You know, we want the firemen, the fireman, the policeman has got to run in the direction of the firing. You have to fight against, the policeman is not RoboCop. He's scared shitless. And he has been trained to run in the direction that everyone else is running from. And part of what art is... Going in the direction that everyone is running from, that everyone is cursing, that everyone is saying is no good, is whack. And, you know, I completely get why safety in numbers, safety of approval is very popular. You know, going your own way, not so much. Mm. People say, find yourself, but. What do you do when what you find is not the flavor of the month? Ain't going to be the flavor of the month, you know? And ultimately, it really begs. Well, that's actually that. I was about to say begs the question. It's actually wrong to say. Right. But it, it really demands the question, well, what are you in for? What are you here for? Are you here for the props? Because if you're here for the props, if you get the props, your motivation is satisfied, and then the work collapses. It has to collapse. How could it go forward? Charles Ives was independently wealthy, right? So for him, it wasn't about the money. It didn't have to be about the money. Many artists, you know, once they're paid, there's nothing left. There's mm -hmm. nothing there, right? So the thing that in that irreducible, inchoate thing that can't be satisfied that won't be satisfied by things or money. That is something really precious. caricatured idea but on some place in all of that the fake fake became incredibly real somewhere by the time of swordfish trombones the mask became his face and I love that mm. I've, I love when you get you don't get bone machine without emotional weather report <laughs> that's true you know, which is like clever and plays to the gallery and it's very funny and it's a black guy sound, you know, a white guy sound like a black guy and blah, blah, blah. And by the time you get to in the Coliseum, you know, uh, the river doesn't want me today. 
he's gone to a place that only, you know, the really brave go. Mm. And that's the and, and, and that's the you know, that's the real that's the real question about everything about about this thing. You know, there are long time periods where things are just dead because institutions take hold, everybody's going by the book, everyone's following the script, everyone's doing remarkably serviceable work, the work is clean, it's professional, it sounds good, it's played well. It's being done by a lot of people who are also really clever that, you know, like nothing is left to chance. And, you know, we go through these periods where, well, it's happening, it's it's, it's not assailable, it's good, it's clearly good, it's clearly well played, it clearly does that thing. And it, and it does that until something or someone goes in a completely other place, goes in a completely different place. Um, I, I believe it's always happening. Is it being paid attention to? You know, in these schools, there are, there are tremendous artists, mm. will they be brave enough to take, to face the dysfunctional thing, the thing that has them running from their family life by practicing 10 hours, 8 hours, you know, that has them trying to perfect, you know, that has them trying to deal with the death of a sibling mm. or the death of a mom or the death of their best friend or the thing that they can't face late at night. The thing that is inside them that they're in the closet about. You know, that they are very religious and they were raised in a non-religious family or they're totally atheist and they were raised by Baptists, you know, whatever it is. That, whatever it is, mm. you know, to, to turn whatever that thing they think is shameful into music, into melodies, into, into art. That's when it changes. It's like, Hip-hop was done by people who had been completely discarded by society. They created something so remarkable because, like, my appreciation of turntablism is partly born by the idea that Marcel Duchamp spoke of ready-made art. Like, the thing is art, you just don't recognize it. It's art because I say it is. Right. And the idea that a turntable could become a musical instrument is a perfect realization of Duchamp's ideas. And it's a perfect realization of Duchamp's ideas, partly because the people that did that had no idea who Duchamp was. They weren't referring to Marcel Duchamp at all. And that is what makes it a perfect realization of, of a, a very powerful idea. Mm. Like our knowledge of things, our we already know that this is happening, so we're making a conscious effort to do what have you. You know, we have to, I think about happy accidents all the time to create the conditions for the lovely, unexpected thing to happen. To prepare oneself, to prepare myself as much as possible, and then let go of fear, let go of judgment, let go of what I want to do, who I want to be, how much I want to be liked, let go of that and let the music actually transport, change who I am in a particular moment to whatever level of skill I have. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I said to someone, you know, Whatever you don't got, that's what you have. <laughs> so one of the things I love about Tommy Bolin, the rock and roll guitarist Tommy Bolin, Tommy Bolin was very much like Hendrix in the sense that if he was confronted with changes or something like that, would he technically know how to play through those changes? Maybe so or maybe not, but he would play something. He wouldn't be stymied by, uh, he wouldn't be thinking about, I don't... He would play something. And this is something that unites him to Hendrix. Hendrix is going to play something. Mm. Right, wrong, indifferent. 
and somewhere in that make music you know and this is one of the great challenges uh, of a doctrinaire period is is the, 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 the cold irony of it is that a bunch of people who are off the reservation I mean outsiders for real created something that became institutionalized you know like like would Thelonious Monk win the competition named after him right <laughs> Oh, I'm going to steal that for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's brilliant. You know, and that's that's the you know someone, but someone you know, imagine someone who, you know, there's a video, uh, you on YouTube. It's probably got a, it's had a few million hits. It's uh, it's a lady in Botswana playing guitar, uh, and. <laughs> You see this? I saw the video. I literally was like, "I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting my time completely." Like she plays the guitar so utterly differently than even beyond hearing Joseph Spence. Like it's completely mm. awesome. She plays with the backs of her hands. She plays. It's it's incredible, and it's awesome, awesome. And that's what's possible with. Music, it's possible all the time. Someone that takes a drum set and does something completely sideways with it. You know what I mean? That's like a Milford Graves or a Sonny Murray or a Barry Alt show. Just something completely different. Mm. And now we have a crop of just outstanding drummers. It's outstanding. It's fascinating to me. A lot of wonderful players coming up. I, I don't want to paint the picture that it's you know, fantastic folks in different styles. Um, and some some people not just not just playing a lot of fast notes. Yeah. Do very interesting things. Like one one of my favorite guitar players that I've had a chance to work with in, in Burnt Sugar is Ben Tyree. Mm-hmm. Ben Tyree is just he's fascinating, interesting. Unique, you know, stuff. He's doing stuff from solo guitar to ensemble stuff, and you know, also in that band, Burn Sugar is, is is my dear friend Andy Lasalle, who was the first person, you know, who really properly played like Hendrix, and you know, it's really interesting to see and hear what people are doing. Yeah, I love it. Well, we, we are out of time. I didn't even get to Artificial Africa or the Field Negro Guide, but... Oh, my this, God. The, Cut all that stuff <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but in any case, I encourage people to seek out both those please, things. Please, please check out the Field Negro Guide to Arts and Culture. It's my, my podcast with the comedian W. Kamau Bell, and uh, it's our take on everything and everything else. <laughs> and yeah. it is well worth listening to. I'm a Thank you, I'm a rabid fan. He sure is. I mean, you were yeah. like one of the first people <laughs> to tweet about us. Yeah, but, you know, it's, and uh, producer Alex Thornton and I are often uh, in communication, which is nice. And also, folks should check out Artificial Africa, which I saw on its uh, this uh, edition of it on its opening night at Dixon Place, and and uh, it's it's really worth people taking the time to find. Uh, anyway, my guest is Vernon Reed. It's it's such an honor and a joy to talk to you, and I thank you very much for taking the time to do it, Jason. Thank you so much. I just kept talking and talking no, and it's, talking. Please. <laughs> it's, it's when the guest says one word and finishes that it's a problem. It's not when the guest has a lot to say that's a problem. You know? <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And uh, further on down the road, bro. Thanks, brother. All right. Thank you.
music from the band spectrum road and vernon reed such a pleasure to sit down with vernon i'm really really excited to have done it this is the jazz session i'm jason crane the show is sponsored by matt rock Monat verdi and nicholas payton you can find it at the jazz please become a member or make a one-time donation to my tour you can do either of those at the jazz and to follow the tour you can read my tour diaries at jasoncrane.org and of course the shows that i make will be here at the jazz Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everybody who has supported the tour so far. It's been truly inspiring, and uh, there's a lot left. I'm only in the first few days. Uh, There's like 15 stops between here and New Orleans, and then southwest and the west and the northwest, Canada, who knows where else. So thank you so much for your support, and I hope to see you out there. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.